0: Hence began the season of Lent within the church calendar. I got an email a couple uh, months ago from my buddy Ron. You might remember Ron, uh, Ron Nargi in uh, in out in central Pennsylvania, and he's out near Penn State. And he comes to visits when he would come and see his mom. And I miss seeing him. He's always a great brother to see when he would come out and he said now i've been listening to your sermons and you're talking about the lectionary this and advent that and uh, we don't hear a lot of this in pca churches um but it's it's a chance for me to say again uh in the pca if we use it as Reformed folks because at the time of the reformation they did flee away pretty hard from some of the the uh uh, the 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 growths that came upon the the simplicity of the gospel, right? When when reform people are opposed to things like the church calendar and seasons and such, it's it's generally because they view it as you know it's just a, a uh, an overgrowth on the gospel, and it can end up hiding the purity and simplicity of the gospel. And we don't want that. I certainly don't want that, um, and I I don't think we're in jeopardy of returning to that. Um, so just a chance again to say that when we come to seasons like Advent, or in this case Lent, 40 days prior to Easter, I view it, and I really encourage you to think of it this way, as simply as a tool. It's, it's a tool for your piety. It's a tool for your growth of your Christian life. And if it's a helpful tool, use it. And if it's not, ignore it. That's okay. That's okay. Lent is a 40-day season of fasting. It's a 40-day period of contemplation. reflection it's a 40-day period of preparation for the celebration of Holy Week and and most of all of course uh, the resurrection that we take this time these 40 days to uh, reflect upon our sin to reflect upon our need for a Savior uh, to reflect upon the gracious and merciful work of the Lord in his humiliation and in his suffering Um, Sometimes there are actual fastings. You know, you quote-unquote give something up for Lent. Um, The point of that is to fast. I mean, the Bible calls us to fast, and maybe you're very good at fasting. Maybe fasting is part of the regiment of your life and your piety and your devotion to God. It's so great, then then perhaps the season of Lent is not a, a helpful tool. You're already doing it. But perhaps you're not. Perhaps fasting really does not find a place within your piety. Um, Then perhaps it's a good tool. It's saying, hey, here's a time to do it in which Christians all over the world are doing it. uh, And you can join into that. And if you find that helpful, then by all means, take advantage of it. Maybe give something up. Fast from something, whether it be food or some activity. That is good. That is not a bad thing. But you're going to hold off from it in order to remind yourself that as your body or your mind hungers for that thing, so it should also hunger for Christ. And let the pangs of the hunger or the desire to have that thing that you're used to having uh, remind us of our need for Christ. That's the point of it. And to to, uh, remind us again of our own humanity, our shortcomings, our our frailties. But all of this, of course, is not as a thing in and of itself. It's to draw us close to Christ. Whatever draws you away from Christ, get rid of draws you close to Christ, then pour gas on it. You know? Pour gas on that fire and let it, let it blaze in your love for Christ. So what we're doing as a church, we're not following the lectionary during the season of Lent this year, but we are doing our own little series. And we are going to kind of march our way through Isaiah 53, a very, very familiar passage to us, one that we always read on Good Friday. <clears throat> it's the clearest, uh, if you will, Uh, uh, instance of the gospel in the Old Testament, though there are many pictures and shadows of the work of Christ in the Old Testament, nothing gets as clear as we get in Isaiah 53. It's the, it's the climactic, I think maybe capstone of the Old Testament preparation for Christ. By time you get to Isaiah 53, the only thing we're lacking is his name. You know, we get, we get a lot here in Isaiah 53. Now, We've combined today two texts. We would have split this into uh, the first stanza, if you will, of this hymn or this poetic prophecy uh, begins in Isaiah 52. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is the fourth in a series of servant songs in Isaiah. We've hit that point in Isaiah where the Isaiah is prophesying, but in, in poetic form uh, about this coming servant, And it's a little, it's mysterious for us. If we go back, remember this is 700 years before Christ. If we go back to this time, it's mysterious. Who are we talking about here? But at this point, Isaiah, Isaiah is breaking into prophetic song about a servant of the Lord who is going to come and bring deliverance and so forth. And here we are in that series and we're in the fourth song, Isaiah 52 in verse 13, going down through Isaiah 53. Now we've combined We've stepped back into Isaiah and taken up the second stanza in Isaiah 53 because in two weeks I will not be here. Uh, I'm actually preaching at uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church, and Justin is coming uh, here. So not quite a pulpit spot, but Kevin asked if I would uh, come and preach at Westminster, so I'm going to do that. So for that week, you will not get Isaiah 53, and so we're combining two today just to give you some. This is, this is inside baseball stuff. This is a, I mean, I'm letting you see all the, the behind-the-scenes stuff. It's boring you. Okay, let's get to the day. Well, our text this morning, we've already read uh, Isaiah 52, and we're going to go through Isaiah 53, verse 3. As we do, let's remind ourselves of the context. Now, we get that by jumping even beyond the first um, stanza, back up into verses 10 and 11. And hopefully, when we read Isaiah 52, as our Old Testament reading today, you heard the resonances with, Revelation 18 right in Revelation 18 our our word of exhortation today we had the charge to my people get out of her come out of her right come out of Babylon she is going down terrible judgment is going to come upon her don't stay there kind of like you know lot you know get out of Sodom and Gomorrah it's it's gonna blow it's gonna blow get out of there um And here in Revelation 18, this picture of, yeah, sure, the final coming of judgment, but it's a reminder to all of us now that judgment is upon us. The judgment of Christ upon the kingdoms of this world is upon us and has been upon us since the death and resurrection of Christ, and it's going to blow, if you will. Okay, The kingdoms of this world will not stand in their idolatry. The harlots of this world meaning the cultures that's in revelation the cultures of this world who thrive off of the um uh the the, the imperial powers that would be he calls harlots you know they they they're seductive and beautiful but they destroy you and and the the harlot cultures of this world are going to blow get out of there don't linger there now in isaiah the people of god are being sent into exile They're being sent to Babylon. Literally, they're going to go to Babylon, to the real Babylon, uh, to the the, sort of the principal Babylon. They're going to go to that city. And as an act of judgment, the Lord is saying, "Okay, you refuse to heed the word of the prophets. Okay, you were going to go scattered out into Assyria, scattered out into Babylon. But by the time we get to the end of Isaiah, you're starting to get these, again, prophetic songs about Israel's redemption on the other side of that judgment. They're reading this before the judgment comes, even. And the judgment is going to come, and they are going to be enslaved in Babylon. They're going to be dragged out viciously, viciously. Their city's going to be destroyed. Their temple's going to be destroyed. The city's going to be burned. They're literally going to be dragged by hooks out into exile and scattered throughout the empire. It's going to be bad. But what Isaiah is giving us here is... But there is going this, the, you know, sorrow lasts for the nighttime, but joy comes in the morning. The sun goes down, but it rises again. And Isaiah is here to the point in his prophecy of telling them the sun is going to rise again. You're going to go through terrible judgment, but the time is going to come where you're going to hear verse 11 of, of chapter 52. Depart, depart, go out from there. You're going to be freed from your exile. You're going to be freed from your judgment. The nations are going to lose their grip on you, and you're going to be able to waltz out of there. So be ready. When the time comes, get up and get out. Judgment is coming to an end, and you are free to leave. Now again, we do want to relate this out to us. So that's what's happening in Isaiah. The the people of God... Are told that their judgment is going to come to an end, and the time is going to be when they are able to just depart, walk out like Israel just walked out of Egypt. They just walked out. Now, Egypt thought twice, and or I guess eleven times, and 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 pursued them, and pursued them to the Red Sea, and eventually were crushed. But but Egypt, they just walked out. The Lord said, "Depart after Passover," and the people just got the. They just walked out of their of their. Of their um, cap from their captors, and here the same thing is depart, go out from there, and when you go, touch no unclean thing. You who who bear the vessels of the Lord, you priests, don't you defile yourselves? Just get out of there, cut the ties, and get out. And you hear that in, in Revelation eighteen: Come out of her, come out of her. She is defiled. Get out of that culture. Judgment has come upon her. You're free. Get out. In verse 12, you will not have to go out even with haste, nor by flight. Think about Egypt. They just leisurely walked out of uh, Israel and Egypt. They literally just walked out of of their prison, of their captivity. Oh, you say, but yeah, but Egypt came pursuing them. Yeah, but but look at how this ends. Same thing will be true for these people. You will not have to go out by haste, nor by flight, for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. He's going to lead you and he's got your back. And that's exactly what happened in Egypt, right? They, they came out and they got out there and then they were hemmed in by the Red Sea and, and they said, oh no, and then all of a sudden this big dust cloud of, you know, coming at them because the Egyptian army is, is now pursuing them and, and, oh no, what are we going to do? And, and Moses, you brought us out here just because there were no graves in Egypt. We're going to die out here. And the Lord stood between them was their rear guard, opened the Red Sea for them, led them out, and was their rear guard to protect them and hold them off until eventually they were gone and then consumed their enemies. And so Israel, you've seen this story already. You've seen it. And the same is true for us. Judgment has come upon the nations in Christ. And now the word to us is get out. Now again, I, this does not mean physically get out. We get Where can you go? right? No, we're to live here. This is a spiritual thing. Do not, do not uh, be entwined with the cultures of this age. And so easy to do. Think about how much time in your day. Think about how many of the, if you could just put in a bucket, all the affairs of your heart, all the things you worry about, how many of them are quote unquote kingdom things? And how many of them are quote unquote culture things? How many of them are things that have to do with this world? I'm not saying these are unimportant by the way, but let's just think proportionally. How many of the things how 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 much of your time are you waking up and what's what you are wrestling with is your sanctification what you are wrestling with is how we just get the gospel out to the world how we how we help bring salvation to our neighbor how much of your time is focused on that and how much time is worried about covid about cultural things about the gas prices about ukraine about politics and president biden or president trump or these fights it's like how much time in proportion? If you're like me, the scales are really tipped the wrong way here. So many of our conversations, so many of the cares of our hearts are economic, political, social, international, foreign policy, just these kinds of things. So when we hear the word to us, get out of her, if your scale is tipped like mine, you need to be concerned. I need to be concerned today because I need to come out of her. It doesn't mean I shouldn't care at all about these things, of course, right? We, we live here. We need to love our neighbors. And in loving our neighbors, I need to care about the affairs of this world. Okay, so, so politics matter. Okay, who's president matters. What the laws are matters. What happens in Ukraine matters and we should care. But the proportion kind of helps us realize where our hearts are. So we have to be careful. The word here is depart. Judgment has come upon the nations of this world. Don't tether yourself there. Get out. Get out. So that's a charge to us right at the outset. Now, verse 13 begins the servant song. And you see, behold my servant. There's, uh, we could just stop the sermon right here. Behold my servant. Probably I should have titled the sermon this Behold my servant, right? So, okay, look, judgment is upon them. You're going to be able to walk out. So what do you do? What does your mindset be? Here's what it is. What are you looking at? What dominates your, your windscreen? You know, your, your windshield. What, what dominates your vision? The affairs of this world? Well, here, Isaiah is challenging you. Be, or the Lord throws it. Behold my servant, Here's what you should be looking at. Look at Christ. Right, Hebrews chapter 12. Let us run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Christ. Right? Disentangling ourselves from the sins of this world which so easily entangle us and trip us up. Fix your eyes on Christ. Behold my servant. And now we get this description of him. And I want you to see here this play, well, play may be the wrong word here, um, this juxtaposition between exaltation and humiliation. Because this is what we're going to see throughout this whole song, is that the servant of the Lord, who remains nameless at this point, but again, we know, because as Peter says, these things were written gloriously for us. Notice the juxtaposition of exaltation and humiliation. First, it starts with exaltation in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He will lead with wisdom and prudence. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Look, whether you look at him or not, whether the nations recognize him or not, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, we can feel frustrated that the world doesn't honor him. Well, it it, it means zero. He is, and he will be exalted. We know in Philippians 2, the day is coming when every knee will bow. Not should bow, will be invited to bow. Uh Uh-oh. The day is coming when every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is, rebels and saints will all bow. It will be unavoidable. They will bow and they will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord because he's king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. This is the good news of the gospel. It is coming. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So we have this, and this is very important for us. That this song begins with this, because, and I want to encourage you this, even as we go through Lent, and certainly as we come to Holy Week and 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 again in the big scale, it's it's another week, but it's a time in which you remember the holy things, okay? So it's not a, a week that's holy, it's that this week we take time, and when we get to holy week, quote unquote, to remember the holiest of things, right? The 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 death and the resurrection of our Lord. But as we go through any time of contemplation, even as we think about the suffering of our Lord, right at the beginning in verse 13, Isaiah and the Lord are giving us the lenses that we must use to think about Christ, because you're going to hear some rough things. So, Isaiah 53 is not an easy passage, it's a glorious passage, but it's a gloriously disturbing passage. Just like Good Friday the worst of all days in the history of days. You crucified God. It doesn't get worse than that, yet we call it Good Friday. It's, it's a gloriously disturbing day. Isaiah 53 has this. So Isaiah 53, it, as the song begins in verse 13 of chapter 52, behold, my servant will deal prudently. He will be exalted. When you see the hard parts of this, which are coming right in the next verse, okay? Remember, he will be exalted. He will be extolled. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Remember that. Let that color all the rest of what you're about to hear in this song. Okay, he is going to be exalted, this servant. Now, just a quick word about the servant. In Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah... Isaiah is referred to as a servant. Israel is referred to as a servant. So as we're reading this, we may even be, we're really tracking with the book. We may ask, who is this servant? Are you talking about Israel, Lord? Is this just another way of you talking about Israel? Are you talking about Isaiah? And it becomes very clear he's talking about neither. And so again, there's this mystery in the book. Like, okay, well then who who is this servant? Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and he shall be extolled and be very high. I don't care what the nations do. We just sang, it was nice that Mark chose Psalm 2 because the nations can plot in vain. The nations can can scheme and grumble against the Lord. They can do whatever they want. You know what God does in heaven? He laughs. He laughs. And he says, behold, I have set up my anointed on my holy hill. He will be exalted. And that song ends with, so kiss the sun, lest you be dashed to pieces. Okay, because he is exalted and you will bow before him and you will kiss the son, lest you perish in the way. Now, verse 14, the humiliation of the servant. So here we're just flying high. You know, we're like, man, we're just going to walk out of here. God's our real guard. This is wonderful. Our, you know, the servant of the Lord is going to be exalted. It's going to be terrific. And then verse 14, just as many were astonished at you and you're thinking, okay, still exaltation. The, term, the tone changes very quickly just as many were astonished at you, Israel. So his visage, his appearance, his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So from exaltation to just horrific humiliation like that. Now, remember, he's going to be exalted, but... Just like people were astonished at you, Israel, that you being the people of God would be abused like this by your nation, by your neighbors, Babylon just destroying your city and dragging you out and throwing you into exile. Just as people stood back and said, whoa, yes, so will it be when people look upon him. That is, he is going to come down into your shoes. He's going to stand in your place He is going to endure what you have endured, but of course we know, even greater. Just as people were astonished at you, so his visage was marred even more, more than any man. So he is going to bear up, and we know this from the rest of the the song, which we'll get into in the next couple weeks, but you can, I won't go there to give it all away, but your mind can maybe flash out to some of the, the phrases in Isaiah 53, in which he does stand there and takes our stripes and takes our chastisement and takes our crushing and to all these things that, that come down upon him. So he will be exalted but he will be exalted as one who was marred more than any man. He bears and for, it doesn't mean, oh, so no person in the history of the world was beaten more than Jesus. No, no, no. You're, again, we know that's you're misreading, you're overreading, you're reading too literally. He endures more. And that way he is marred more than any man. No one, no one, it's not even on the same scale. Deals with what Jesus deals with on the cross. I told my students just the other day, and I've told you, the beatings from Rome were really bad, more than I could even imagine. I tremble just to think of them. But I'm also reminded that the two guys next to him were up there being crucified as well. We think crucifixion, okay, he had to endure crucifixion. Yeah, they endured crucifixion what made jesus sweat drops of blood was not roman crucifixion as bad as that was and i'm sure it's unbelievably unsettling but what made him sweat drops of blood was not roman crucifixion what made him sweat drops of blood was that he was about to be marred more than any man right he was going to be struck by the rod of god's judgment he was going to bear hell literally for the sake of his people so we have this amazing exaltation Come out, my people. Behold, look, keep your eyes on the servant. He's going to be exalted. Here he is torn apart his visage more than any man. Then back to exaltation in verse 15. So shall he sprinkle. Yes, he's, he's marred more than any man, but notice it's, it's so that. He does this and we know the details. He, as, as New Testament saints, he is marred more than any man so that he can sprinkle many nations. So that he can purify them. He takes all their uncleanness upon himself so that he can sprinkle them clean. And it's going to happen. Again, exaltation, good news. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. Maybe those who rage, you know, the nations rage against the Lord, their mouths will be shut. For what what had not been told to them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. That is, even the kings of the earth are going to be in awe of what the Lord does. And many will come to him. So exaltation, humiliation. But hey, even through the humiliation, and it's not, its not. oh, even though he is humiliated, he still does really amazing things. No, it's through the humiliation. The, the humiliation is so that he can sprinkle them. Now, the details of that will have to be worked out later in this psalm, and this uh, hymn. But the the humiliation is not an inconvenient bump in the road. The the humiliation is the means by which the exaltation comes, right? In in the Philippians 2 passage, when it says he's exalted and, you know, every knee will bow, that, I think it was at verse 9 there, when he's talking about being exalted, it says, and therefore God highly exalted him. And the therefore comes on the other side of all this humiliation. Exaltation, he was equal with God, but then... Humiliation, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Now exaltation, therefore, God highly exalted him. It's the same thing as we have here. He's exalted, he's humiliated, so that he might be exalted and that every knee would bow and every tongue confess him. He can sprinkle them clean. And then 53 begins the second stanza where now we go back to the Humiliation. And Isaiah asked the question, like, who who can believe this? Who has believed this? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I mean, it's a rhetorical question, like, nobody believes this. And here's why. Verse 2, because he will grow up before him, us, as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground, as one who has no form or comeliness, beauty. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So this is, this is why uh, nobody believes the report because when he came on the scene, again, he didn't come riding on the white horse, you know, you know the, the great stallion and the war horse he's going to in Revelation 19, we see that. When he comes back, he will come that way. But when he came the first time, he, he came riding on a donkey. He comes as a carpenter's son. He, he comes as, a, as one with a questionable background. Hey, wait, your mom got pregnant before they were married. He, he has to he has to bear that he comes as a wandering rabbi who who foxes have holes at least and birds have nests but the son of man he has nothing. This is how he comes, very unimpressive. To the to the calloused you know scale covered you know eye of sinful man, there's nothing on the outside that just draws us to him like there was a drew people to Saul. Saul was oh, what a what a king. A terrible king. A terrible. But that's why you gotta not trust your eyes. So Saul looks so good and Jesus looks terrible. That's how you know your vision is bad. <laughs> he grew up, he grew up like a shoot out of dry ground. You you know the image there. It's not very, it doesn't have a lot of potential. A plant that comes up as a little shoot out of very dry, cracked ground. You wouldn't think, okay, this is the beginning of a new garden. But course, he is. And if you had eyes to see it, then when you heard a root out of dry ground, you might even remember earlier in the book of Isaiah when the Lord used this image of a root or a shoot that was going to come and was going to look very unpromising amid a whole forest of stumps and just one little shoot springing up. But that was the shoot that came from the stump of Jesse. Right, the rod of David, that yes, lo and behold, was going to repopulate the whole forest. He was going to grow it back. If you had ears to hear, then you would say, wait, a a shoot out of dry ground, a root out of dry ground? Could it be? Yes. Yes, it may not look impressive, but you need eyes to see. Who can believe this? He asks. But such as he would, there was nothing that we should desire him. And then verse 3, and we're going to have to leave this sermon on a, on a negative note. This is, like, this is like the first sermon in Ruth, you know, when it's like not a lot to be cheery about here because this, our little text, this stanza ends on a heavy note. Not about our Lord and what he'll do, but about you and me. And he is despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, this service will not end with condemnation. Praise the Lord, we're going to end with the Lord's Supper today. So we're going to have our hearts encouraged. But in this season of Lent, this is the kind of thing we've got to contemplate. Right, that at, at in our hearts, what is true of me in and of myself apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? This, that I looked at him as unpromising. He's not the kind of king I want to follow. He's a root out of dry ground. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Golly, and we hid our faces from him. We despised him. We did not esteem him. We crucified him. That's what we did with him. Right? And I'm speaking in the first person plural here. Not in the third person. What they did to him is what we did to him. Right? As a human race, we took him and despised him and nailed him to a cross. Which makes the the whole word, the beginning of this text That, hey, he's got your back. He's going to lead you and he's going to be your rear guard. And then you contemplate who the people are that he's leading out and that he's guarding. The people who did not find him very promising. The people who despised him. The people who rejected him and did not esteem him. And so while this text for us today ends on a heavy note, a discouraging note, because it reveals the ugliness of our own heart it really should just, as as Lent itself should do, turns us around to just greater praise and glory. Because even as such, the Lord loved us. There he is upon the cross, praying for the very people who are cheering for his death. And he's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. He dies for the very ones that despised him and did not esteem him. And he has changed their hearts like the kings at the end of Isaiah 52. They, the things they did not understand, they came to see. They were drawn to. And this is true of you and me. By nature, we're the despisers of Jesus. But he has loved us and he has been so merciful and so gracious to us. He has sprinkled us clean Though our sins were as scarlet, we are now white as snow because of the blood of our suffering servant, the one who stood in our place, who bore. He wasn't just, you know why he was acquainted with grief? Because he took our grief. You know why he was a man of sorrows? Because he took our sorrows. Do you know why he looked so ugly? Because he bore our ugliness. He took our brokenness. He took it all on himself. So that he could give us beauty. So that he could give us life. So that he could make us fruitful. So that he could give us joy in place of sorrow. This is what he did. He did it for you. And he did it for me. So our low note, as the gospel always does, only brings us to a greater high note. And we'll end with that. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess the ugliness of our own hearts. You've exposed it in this text. We cling to Babylon. Our hearts are ugly. We don't recognize your glory. We despise your ways. But Father, we thank you that you are a God who is rich in mercy, abounding with loving kindness, that you have loved us even in our sin, and that you have brought us out. You led us out of Egypt, grumbling all the way, but by your mercy, you have brought us into the promised land, leading us and being our rear guard, For you have sent your only begotten Son to be a man of sorrows. Though he is eternal and infinite in glory, he is the very definition of beauty. But that he would take upon himself the ugliness of our sin. That on the cross he might become sin. That we through him might become the beauty of righteousness, the righteousness of God. Oh, Father, we are humbled by that this morning. May your name be praised. (laughs) And may your praise fill our lips, not only today, but forevermore. And in so doing, may you recalibrate us during this season of Lent. Recalibrate our hearts, that you would loosen our cares and concerns over all of the minutia of the fleetingness, the fleeting nature of of this life and these cultures. And anchor our hearts to the eternal things, the solid things, the things of Christ, the things of your kingdom. Help us to seek your kingdom first and its righteousness and trust that all these other things will be added to us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.